Hi, this is Pastor Tim. If this is your first time listening today, please stay tuned after the message. So I was had a song on before, and I may share a song or two in the future now that we're on Zoom. It's a little easier to do that, but uh, it talks about whatever your plan is, you will make a way for it, right? That God's plan, He'll make a way for it. And I know that that's definitely on our hearts all the time, and we look for answers from God in those plans. And... Uh, we're going to be back in Revelation tonight, but God had laid something on my heart that I'm going to share in a minute, and I wasn't sure how it was going to fit in, but I think it, I think it does fit in, and I think it works with what we're in tonight. But we'll be in Revelation chapter 14, uh, the first 13 verses, I believe it is, 1 through 13 of Revelation 14. And uh, the title of the message is, Yes, Says the Spirit. The Spirit says yes. Before we get into it, you know, you know, it's 2022, we're studying Revelation, our headlines go hand in hand, and so I'm just going to share a few headlines from the news from these past couple weeks. Uh, and again, if you need the links for these, uh, the notes are available for download on the website. If you go to the message, there's a little button to download the notes underneath the audio player. The first one is, U.S. intelligence began tracking Americans after the 2020 election. A geo-tracking fence was set up around a Capitol before January 6th to catch people likely to attend the Trump rally. So if you ever wonder how they caught all those insurrectionists on January 6th, they had set up cell phone towers to grab all their cell phone information, and then from there it was like shooting fish in a barrel to pick them all off, and that's just people showing up there. So uh, remember to turn off your phone before you go protest. (laughs) But New York eyes facial recognition to card for alcohol, cigarettes, and, and e-cigarettes. So New York wants to start doing facial recognition uh, software instead of an ID. Uh, the IRS is doing that now. I don't know if you tried to log on to the IRS website with tax season. Uh, I did to try and, and find something out, and then they wanted me to like upload photos of my face, do a 3D scan of my face and my phone. And uh, I started to, but then I realized this is not good, and I canceled out of it, and they keep emailing me to complete it. But... Uh, they were going to do that to file this year, and there was pushback, so they pushed it back. So know that uh, more and more control over who you are is coming. Uh, and, you know, there's a reason that God didn't want David to number the people, if you remember that, that David was moved against the, the Israelites to number them, and afterward he repented, and God said, hey, there's consequence for this. But God knows every number about us, right? He knows every number of our head, every number of my receding hairline, um, he knows our days, the number of our breaths, uh, but he loves us, right? When we tend to number people, we tend to devalue them. Uh, people become a commodity. Well, how many followers do you have on social media? How many people come to your church? How big is your company? Um, and with government, in some ways, individuals become dehumanized. Uh, the individual gets sacrificed for the greater good, right? We'll take away your right to make sure that the greater good does better. Well, God doesn't do that. And God doesn't want us to be numbered. And I bring that up because, well, that's exactly what's going to happen, what we read about the last time in Revelation, and exactly what happens in the last days. Everyone gets a number, and they get assigned a number, and uh, 
they re it requires that number to do any transaction. And speaking of which, uh, the BBC lauds an implantable microchip wallet. Talking about, you know, Meemaw, you might be familiar where they put the, the chip, or Aunt Mary Jane might know, they put the chip in the dog or the cat, and they can scan it and see who owns the dog or cat. Uh, very similar technology to be put into someone's hand to use for contactless payments. And I don't know how they can say these things with a straight face uh, before, but that's, that's what's coming. And, you know, the, the article talks about them louding it as safe and everything. Uh, and maybe it is, but, and you know what? If you, got a mar if you got a payment in your hand and you put your credit card in your hand and you waved it, I wouldn't even say that that would be sinful unless it was associated with the mark of the beast, right? If it was something to show allegiance to the world leader, um, then at that point it would be. But it's interesting to see that that technology is coming together quickly. And one more, and this one's kind of out there. Scientists now say humans may be all over the universe. Uh, they talk about evolution, right? And, well, if evolution has this convergence where everything will eventually reach some peak and humans are the peak, we may bump into other humans and as we discover the solar system, or those might be the type of visitors that come here are humanoid. Um, because evolution is going to work the same way throughout the whole universe, they talk about. Um, but man, I say the deception in the end times is strong. Uh, that when and if human-like beings show up from another planet, uh, they're not from another planet, as we talked about. They are demonic. And science is setting the stage to call them anything but that uh, as demonic. Call them as humanoids from somewhere else. And we know that angels, some of the angels are really weird in the Bible with the wings and the eyes and the lion heads and all these things that we see in Revelation. But a lot of others look like humans, right? That uh, The men with Jesus who went to Sodom and Gomorrah, well, those are angels and they look like men. And uh, just know that, man, the, the veil is being lifted, not only uh, as we read Revelation, but in the world and the spiritual world is, is, is creeping out. Uh, but I wanted to bring up this other thing, because I've been thinking about, I don't know if you've ever heard the term uh, fifth generational warfare. And again, I'm just throwing information at you because I believe it's pertinent and it sort of connects the dots from where we are now to uh, where Revelation is, right? Well, fifth generational warfare is a warfare, and it's contested among those who are scholars in warfare, right? But they say that warfare is conducted primarily through non-kinetic military action. So typically throughout all of history, warfare was kinetic. You, th you know, Cain hit Abel with a rock. They began to throw rocks. They threw spears. They hit each other with swords, kinetic energy, right? Weapons, bombs, bullets. But now fifth generational warfare is moving beyond bullets, moving beyond kinetic warfare, where obviously we still think see things going on in Ukraine and Russia with kinetic warfare. In other words, people get shot in tanks and bombs, right? But there's this whole other layer of fifth generational where it is uh, social engineering, misinformation, cyber attacks, uh, emerging technologies such as artificial intelligence and fully autonomous uh, battle systems, that this fifth generational warfare uh, is a war of information and perception. And how fitting that in the last days, warfare would move into this final realm, which is more of a spiritual realm of deception. This is why I say, don't believe what you see on the news, right? How can you vet it? How can you say it's true just because they say it's true, whether it's Vladimir Putin or whether it's Joe Biden? You know, what is, what is the difference to us, right? Why would we believe one over the other? Uh, because deception is out there. You talk about during the Cold War, PSYOPs and the CIA and the KGB. Well, that stuff's out there. Disinformation's out there. And they, in fact, want to control the narrative. Why? Because if they control the narrative, they can control uh, what we believe about what's going on out there. And again, I can't say one way or the other. Obviously, war is awful. 
But man, to think that in our last days we could believe anything. You know, I saw this clip, this little meme of a comedian, right? And he says, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I don't know how there's people out there who say there are no such things as conspiracies, right? He goes, I'm a father and I lie to my kid all the time. Why wouldn't the government lie to you and me <laughs> when, uh, to keep control over us, right? And we, we don't lie to our kids. At least we try not to. And if we do, we have to repent. But man, isn't that the world? Why wouldn't the government lie to you and I? Not that they don't lie about everything, but why wouldn't they to maintain control? It's in their best interest, right? But the wars of our age are literally waged with deception, right? And James says, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Do not be deceived. We live in a time where deceit is heavy. And what's the way out of that deception? Well, it's to know the truth. So stay in your Bible. Read the Bible. Go to Bible studies. Go to ones that are way better than this. Get plugged into a church. Watch them. Listen to them. Stay in the Word in your own time. Because this is the only way to, to stay out of deception is to know the truth and to be washed by it regularly. Um, and you just spend a few minutes reading the news and your my brain is going all over the place and in a whirlwind. So, uh, I, you know, so I go, so I'm sure everyone else would go as well. But deception is everywhere. That's how power is gained. I'm not going to to get further into that, we know that, right? But a question to ponder before we read, and this is kind of what I was talking about before, about what the Lord was sort of ministering to me too, and I felt really kind of overwhelmed with it as we stud- as I studied, but, and even just in general the past few months, uh, but what do we really want? What do you and I really want? I'm not asking you to answer this out loud uh, or even want to know, but what do we even need to worship? When you and I go to church, when we look for a church, when we look for fellowship, what is it that draws us in? What is it that keeps us there? Is it the lights? Is it the band? Is it a very good speaker? Right? If you look at the way a lot of Christianity and a lot of these big churches are and the way these guys speak and their methodologies, uh, one way or the other, uh, is it comfortable seats? Uh, you know, why do we need any of that? Are there things that are getting in the way of us truly worshiping God? Right? And I'm not, when I say this, I, I, I'm not trying to call it out and say that these things are bad, that the speaker should be uneloquent or not have his act together, um, or the band should not know how to play instruments or the seats shouldn't be comfortable. They can be a blessing. But again, the more I read the scripture and the little I do, I, don't, I see something deeper than that. I think the Bible shows something opposite of that. I don't see the disciples and Paul doing some things that the church might do these days. And what are we expecting, really, out of our Christian lives? What do we expect when we go to that church, whatever church it is? What do we expect when we come to a Bible study, whatever Bible study it is? What do we expect out of our devotional time when we come into it? What do we expect out of our entire life as a Christian, what's the end goal? What's the end game? What do we expect to get out of our fellowship? Is that expectation something of our own creation? What is it at the core? You know, Jesus said in John 4, he said, The hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. For God is spirit and those who worship him must worship and spirit and truth. And what I ask, and what I think the Lord would ask us today, and not to say that any of these things that we've been involved with or are involved with are wrong or that our expectations are off, but to really step back and consider how much of our, quote, worship is truly that. 
in spirit and truth. Is the church of America at large, or even the church that you and I go to on every Sunday, truly focused on that? Worshiping God in spirit and truth. They might say it. It might be plastered all over the walls. It might be what they did 20 years ago. But is that what they're concerned with today? Is that what we're concerned with today? Or is it about numbers? Is it about appearances? Is their goal to reach the lost? Or is their goal to worship the Father in His house? That we can be distracted from true worship by even good things that we might say. And God, we ask that as we worship you by getting into your word that you would reveal these things to us god where we've gone wrong correct us where we're on the right path strengthen us but god help us to worship you in spirit and truth today is only you can do we can't muster it up god but you can do it and we ask it in jesus name because we know you want to answer it god amen so revelation uh remember john was on the island of patmos it's jesus revealed in glory it's the end of the world as we know it. If you remember that R.E.M. song from the 90s, I won't sing any more of that, I promise. Uh, but it's the great tribulation. The worst time the world will ever see is at our doorstep, guys. It's coming. We, we think it's bad today, and it is. It's going to get worse. You think inflation is bad today? Wait until it's so bad that everyone's clamoring to take on a new mark and have one person control it all. We know that it's judgment on the nations and those who follow Satan, and we'll see that directly today. Uh, but we also know, and we'll see this as well, that it's a last-ditch effort to get the world to repent. And God gives out His last-ditch effort, I think, in a sense, in this chapter today. Uh, last time in 13, we saw the beast of the sea out of the sea, the Antichrist, the beast of the earth, the false prophet, uh, the persecution of the saints was requested, the patience of the saints and their persecution. We saw the man that wisdom was required to, to look for the Antichrist in that time. He's got the number of a man uh, that he could be understood, he could be found, he could be figured out. Uh, that there's this mark, uh, a beast of an idol. Remember, they make the false idol. We talked about, you know, my musings on artificial intelligence and this beast that comes to life that they give life to, um, to control everyone and force them to worship him. Uh, but it's this false god and this forced allegiance. And with that, we'll pick up in Revelation chapter 14 and read the first five verses together. If I can get there myself. Revelation 14, verses 1 through 5 says, uh, John says, Then I looked, and the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of a great thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang a new song before the throne, and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are those who are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are those who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths, for they are without fault before the throne of God. I've read that before and passed over it pretty quickly. The 144,000 tends to be a controversial thing, and I know we can tend to skip over it quickly, but let's not today. We see that the Lamb has arrived on Mount Zion, and there's different perspectives on this, uh, but I believe he's really on Mount Zion here, and with him, the 144,000. And before we talk about who they are, we remember they're in Revelation 7, they're of Israel, but we see something about them. 
that they're with Jesus, and on their heads is written whose name? The Lamb's Father's name is written on their foreheads. It's clear. It's evident. Yahweh, God's name, is on their foreheads. And believe that that's really a stark contrast to the mark on the foreheads of, everyone, of most everyone else on earth at this time. Most everyone else has probably taken the mark by this point, has a mark in their right hand or on their forehead. But these 144,000 with the Lord have the mark of the Father's name on their head. And Satan is always a counterfeit, that he's never original. We like to think that the world is original and the church needs to copy the world because the world is always doing something new and fresh. But let me tell you, the world is never doing anything new. They're never doing anything fresh. No matter how they package it, we're deceived into thinking that because what? They follow Satan, whether they realize it or not. And Satan is a, is a cheap copycat. He's a cheap, he wants to be a cheap imitation of God. And that's why he marks them on their head and their hand because he's trying to be like God. He's trying to be like God there. But we see that these, these folks are marked and they're there with the Lord. And what happens? A sound from heaven. A sound from heaven, like many waters, like great thunder. If you remember a few chapters ago, we remember the voices and the thunderings coming from the throne, uh, the sevenfold voices of God. And we also hear harpists playing their harps. I just, you know, you get that picture. Why, why do they get the idea of harps in heaven? Well, this is probably where they get it. But there's music coming. That there's strong, loud, powerful noises, a powerful voice, and there's music. That God's power is full of worship. That heaven is worshiping him in song day and night for eternity. As as heaven breaks out here, the Lamb is revealed and the 144,000 are revealed uh, is no different. And the songs come out. And it says that they sing a new song. We've seen a couple new songs already in Revelation. But what's interesting, John says, is that only these 144,000 could learn it. That's something about it. No one else could learn it. Right? I think... You know, we hear a new song in worship sometimes, and sometimes it's easy to learn, sometimes it's hard to learn, sometimes the song is written so only a musician can sing the words at that kind of pace and that kind of intonation, right? And other times the worship songs are very easy that you can pick it up by the time they get to the chorus the second time. And sometimes, you know, songs that minister to me are ones that really are, I find my heart echoes that cry of those words at the season of my life when I discover the song and I begin to use it in worship, that, man, it's really ministers to me because it's what my heart is crying out to the Lord at that time, and I find it easy to learn the words, easy to say, God, you're my God, right? Easy to say that, hey, uh, I need you or help me or just whatever it is that's going on in the, in the songs that we learned. Sometimes our heart echoes it, and it's really easy to pick up, and it gets stuck in our head, and we sing it, and we love it, and we put it on repeat, and we listen over and over. And then a couple months later, maybe we don't listen to it anymore because the cry of our heart has been answered and we begin to cry out something else to God. And then maybe we revisit a few years down the line. You know, there's certain songs that I sing to the kids and Ashley and I have taught to the kids that I remember singing in my bed when I was three and four and five. uh, Just little hymns to God and just how special it is to hear them sing it, right? That these songs that we can learn and know and become a part of our spiritual life and worship, our own worship to God. But this song that they're singing, only they could, they could sing it. That the words that they sing are only relative to who they are, their salvation experience, uh, and in the tribulation. And that for us to sing it, it would be impossible because we don't identify with it, right? And that this is a special act of worship from them and the Lord. And not that they're better than us 
or not that, that we are unable to attain it, but it's just different, right? You know, there's things that the Lord has ministered to me about that you've never had to go through and vice versa. There's things that you're going through that I'll never go through in the same way. And so the things that you sing to the Lord, you're going to sing to in a different way than I might sing to the Lord. Uh, even if we come to the same church and the same worship song, it might be uh, out of our heart in a different way, right? You might be broken over this, I might be broken over that, but we can sing the same words, but in a different way to the Lord. And in a sense, our songs are completely different, even though the earthly worship is the same. But only these 144,000 can learn it, right? And these 144,000, well, they're described. It says that they can learn the song, that they have the Father's name in their foreheads, that they're on Mount Zion with Jesus, you know, in Israel. They sing a new song before the throne. It's not just there, but they sing it before God's presence, before the creatures. Uh, that they're redeemed from the earth. You know, these this 144,000, it's clear that these were people who lived and were saved and came to faith in Jesus. They aren't just some another angelic being or some spiritual being, right? But it's interesting that they say that they're virgins. They're not defiled with women, right? Uh, when we look at 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. But Paul says this a little bit later. He says, I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. For I wish that all men were even as I myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it's good for them if they remain even as I am, which Paul said was unmarried. You know, we don't know what happened to his wife. We don't, you know, maybe when he came to faith, she left or maybe she died. We don't know. But at some point he was married, but he's not anymore at this point, and we had some uh, new friends over from church today who are youngly married, and I was just sharing my testimony. I was single for a while, and before Ash came along, and how I used to think about this verse and look to this verse and go, man, well, and really wrestle with it. Like, should I get married someday, right? And obviously I did because it's a concession. I needed to get married, and so I got married. But Paul says, if you can, and if you can grasp it, for some people, there's a better way. It's not for everybody. It's not a commandment. It's not that this is across the board and that we see that that's why there's so many problems in establishments like the Catholic society where they forbid marriage and you see all these problems prop up because these people who should get married are forbidden from doing it, right? And so it just breeds all sorts of issues. But it's interesting that Paul says that and these 144,000 of those who have not gotten married, that they're a fulfillment of this of their, even as Paul was, these 144,000, and they're Jewish. And the best part is they follow the Lamb wherever, right? Like, Ash and the kids and I will go anywhere together to follow the Lord. But it's a little bit harder when i got a family in tow, right? i got to have to care for them, and that's a good thing. And I've learned a lot through that. I've learned a lot about the Lord through that. But if I was unmarried and just some vagabond, I could go anywhere, anywhere and follow the Lord, no problem, uh, without having to think through all the other logistics that go through it. But he also says that, they, uh, that there's no lie they're without fault. And I don't think this is hyperbole, right? I think that they are without fault and have no lie in their mouths. That during this time they came to faith and their faith is so strong that they haven't lied and without fault. But I also think, in the other sense, that their Judaism is without fault. In John 1, Jesus says, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, and he said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. 
And there's no deceit in these 144,000. They live in the most deceitful age ever where Satan is claiming to be God and people are going after him left and right. But these 144,000 Jewish men who aren't married, who came to faith after the, after the rapture, have no deceit. They don't speak lies. They don't live a lie. Their Judaism isn't a lie because their Judaism is fulfilled, right? That there are other Jews certainly who are full of deceit because they've gone after the Antichrist as their Messiah, right? They rejected the original Messiah, and so their Judaism is already a lie. It's already deceitful because they've rejected him, right? How can they really say that they are true Jews when they've rejected the Messiah of Judaism, who's Jesus, right? And that's why it's such a wonderful thing to see messianic fellowships, true fellowships of believers, of uh, Jewish people who have had their faith fulfilled. They not only have it genetically, but they have it spiritually complete, right? And I think that is awesome. It's no better than a Gentile, right? Jews and Gentiles have been grafted together, but sincerely that these Jews have no deceit in them. And if we look back at Revelation 7, we see who they are. We see that they're 12,000 of each of the tribes of Israel to get 144,000, right? That these people come to faith and they're saved out of Israel. And I love that God is not done with Israel, that this number of, of saints is saved. And it's not that there aren't others who come to faith. It's not that there aren't others that are married and pregnant and children who come to faith in this time, perhaps. You know, I think children for the most part will be raptured, but those who are above a certain age, uh, you know, a spiritual age, will be uh, taken. But there's cults who twist this 144,000. I remember my mom talking about me as a kid. You know, I remember coming up all sorts of conversations. There are cults who think that 144,000 is the only amount of people are going to be saved and only the 144,000 of our cult will be saved but then they reach that number, 144,000. I wouldn't want to be the 144,000 and one person to join the cult who believed only 144,000 would be saved. Because what happens? Well, they had to change their doctrine. They had to change what happened. They said, well, this happens to this people, this happens to this people, and so on and so forth. You know, and it's deception, right? They were deceived into believing this doctrine is what something other than it plainly is, that there's 144,000 people who get saved. Jewish men who get saved in this time and are fulfillment of the true Judaism of the tribes of Israel. Right? If we even look at the rest of Scripture, it's obvious. God wants everybody to be saved. God's not putting a number on it. As many people have ever existed are as many people that God wants in heaven. If God takes a thousand years to come back, I don't think it's going to be that long. I think it's closer to ten minutes than it is a thousand years. But whenever he comes back, however many more people are born, however many more people live, that's how many people he wants in heaven. God doesn't say, nope, we're full. You know, you didn't have your reservation, right? He wants everyone to be there, but they have to choose him uh, to go there. It's a free gift. But there's something about this call on this 144,000. There's something about a complete commitment of these 144,000. They're not married. The, they speak only the things of God and uh, they're true, right? That their heritage is fulfilled. They fulfill scripture by coming to faith. They follow Jesus in the darkest time of history. That they, I, again, I think we read Revelation and we forget that these are real people. That these 144,000 is not some ethereal event. It is talking of future history. That the people who take the mark could be our neighbors. Could be the people we work with. Could be the people at the supermarket. Rapture happens tomorrow. Guess who's taking the mark? Most of those people, if they're not wiped out from the earth, from the judgments. We think of it as this far-off, distant, disconnected thing, but it's reality, and it's coming up next in history, and so are these people. And they follow Jesus in the darkest time of history, 
and they have such resolve to do that. But there's no middle ground for these 144,000. They are fully sold out. They are not lukewarm. They are hot. They have no wife, apparently no career, and they follow Jesus until the very end, until death. But what I love about this is that God is not done with Israel. God is not done with Israel. No matter what some people would tell you, even quote-unquote churches would tell you, God is not done with Israel. How could he be? He would be a liar if he did. He would not keep his promises if he did. And God's not done with the rest of the world either, as we're going to see here. So let's go on to verse 6. And we'll read through 13. It says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the eternal gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, for the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made heaven and earth the sea and the springs of water. And another angel followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon, that great city, because she made all the nations drink of the wine of her wrath, of her sexual immorality. And a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead and on his hand, he shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out in full strength into the cup of his anger. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. The smoke of their torment will ascend forever and ever. They have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit that they may rest from their labors, for their works follow them. And there's a lot here, right? There's a lot here. But there's three angels, and that's what we're going to look at to start. Uh, that there's not, Obviously, we've seen tons of angels already in Revelation, but these three angels come in sort of a group package. They've kind of, you know, one, two, three jets flying over, I don't know. But they come, and they each have a different purpose to proclaim a different message. That there's no question that the people in the last days, even the people who have taken the mark, are fully aware of the gospel, have been fully preached the gospel, are fully aware that taking the mark is wrong, are fully aware that the world system is broken, and they have no excuse when they go to stand before God. That God said, last-ditch effort, you three angels go out and tell them the blunt truth in a few sentences, and that's it. And they're all going to hear it. And they fly through the midst of uh, heaven. Think, you know, Look outside, that's not a helicopter. That's an angel flying over, and you hear his voice saying these things to you. Uh, again, we begin to separate it when things begin to get sci-fi, right? But this is real, and this really happens. And the first one preaches the eternal gospel, the eternal gospel. I love that, that it says eternal gospel, because uh, I don't know about you, but at least me, sometimes I think of the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, you know, the story of Jesus, and, you know, even at large, the gospel of the Bible, the redemption story of the Bible, that somehow it's just for this life. That when we die, well, we have no need for the gospel anymore. We've been saved. We made it to heaven. You know, we've got gospel 2.0 now. I don't know what it is. Uh, but that's not the case. That this gospel is preached and it's an eternal gospel. Uh, it's an eternal message of God. It's what he's always promised. It's what he's always planned from eternity past. And it's what we're always going to be celebrating for eternity future. You know, all our tears will be wiped away. We're not going to have to think about sin or experience sin anymore. But when we're rejoicing in heaven... Part of that is 
because of the gospel. That is rooted in the gospel, that God would save him, save us from ourselves and from our sin. And from that, we worship him in spirit and truth. You know, in this time, preaching for sure has been outlawed. It's already gotten outlawed in our day and age. Christians are being hunted down and killed. Remember, they're beheaded. They, you have to take the mark. You can't buy or sell without it. People are ratting each other out left and right, ratting their parents out, ratting their children out. It's already happening now. He's unvaccinated. He wasn't wearing a mask. You know, people rat each other out for the littlest infractions now. Imagine what it would be like in this day and age. There's a great evil on the earth reigning from the White House. I mean from, sorry, I meant from Babylon. (laughs) That there's a great evil reigning in this day and age. Um, And that it's physical and spiritual. That literally, remember, hell is fully on earth now. Hell has been not restrained anymore. You know, not that it's a party in hell and the demons are there and everyone's in hell's at a party, but that the powers of hell, the powers that are destined for hell, is maybe the better way to say it, are now fully visible on earth and in power, and God is allowing them to take full control over humanity. But in a sense, he doesn't, because he sends these three angels, right? And God doesn't let any of this stop the gospel from going out. You and I aren't going to be able to Zoom chat. If we were here, we wouldn't be able to Zoom chat. It would be censored. We couldn't say it in the street corner. We'd be hung. You know, you couldn't tell your coworker because you can't go to work. You can't go to, you know, there's going to be all these barriers for the ease of the gospel going out uh, that we don't have to deal with today. And so God, in the last sense, he's taken the church. The, the church was meant to evangelize the world. Um, and now he's using angels. The church is gone. Spirit's letting all this stuff happen. And so he sends the angels out to do it. And he proclaims in the air, and a lot of people say, oh, that was, you know, the satellites. No, no, no. This is a real angel, and this is a real event. And he says, fear God and give him glory, for the hour of judgment has come. Worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. That people are worshiping someone else. They're worshiping someone who doesn't deserve their worship. They're worshiping someone who never created a thing in his life and only destroys things. These people worship this false god, this god of earth, of humanity, of Satan. Uh, He's not the maker of life. He's the destroyer of life. He's the thief. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy, right? Uh, And the universe. And remember, you know, uh, it's interesting that this angel talks about he's the maker of all the water and the springs. And remember that one of the judgments was on the water, that the water turned bitter, right, with wormwood. And God is showing them that he has power over the climate. God is showing them that he has power over creation. That God is in charge of it. That God giveth and God taketh away. And God taking it away, God says, because you need to worship me because the only other option for you is not good. It's not good. It's not this heavy-handed, you must worship me because I'm egotistical, but it's who I am and you need to worship me. Don't worship this other guy. He's not in charge of it. And what do people do in our day and age? What have people done throughout all history, if we're honest? They worship the earth. They worship the created thing, the Bible says, the creature, rather than the creator, right? And wouldn't the modern ethos, the modern philosophy of climate change and uh, caring for the earth and environmentalism, well, what's one of their major tenets? Depopulation. Depopulation. Get rid of people. People are the scourge of the earth. We must get rid of people. We must stop eating these things and doing these things because people are the problem. Well, I have no doubt people are the problem. People litter, right? We're meant to take care of the earth. That's what God put us here for. But we're not meant to exalt it over ourselves. We're not to say the earth is more important than the life of a child. The earth is more important 
than feeding the hungry. The earth is more important. The earth is meant to be here to, to take care of our children, to take care of the hungry. And in turn, we need to take care of it, right? But at the same time, we don't worship it. We don't put it above the benefit of others. And again, that whole uh, mentality of sacrificing the one, the, the needs of the few for the needs of the many, right? People are more important, right? We're so concerned about the earth, but we're not concerned about killing babies in the womb or in California about afterbirth or in Maryland afterbirth, right? We're so wrapped up in that, um, you know, that that's okay, that we need to have more of that, right? Less cars, but more baby killing, right? Something's backwards. Something's upside down there. You know, that we exalt the earth and environmentalism above God and above those made in his image. And that's Satan, right? Because we handed over the title deed of earth to Satan. God gave it to us, but when we sinned, we said, Satan, you get to rule it, and that's Satan. Satan cares more about the earth than us. Satan would want us all to be dead and gone. He doesn't care. He doesn't really care about the earth. He cares about killing us. And if he can use, if he can deceive us and trick us into loving the earth so much that we're willing to kill ourselves, well, of course he's going to do that. Have less kids. Having kids is bad. It's bad for the earth. No, no, no. God said be fruitful and multiply, right? There's, drive out west. I've said it before. Drive out west. You'll see there's plenty of space to live. Now, maybe we need to get rid of fossil fuels. I don't know. But the, my point is, is that the earth is not more important than you and I are. Angel 2, he cries that Babylon is fallen, uh, that the global center of this resurrected Babylon that runs the earth, whether it's actually in Iraq and Iran, I don't know. I don't think so. A lot of people were saying that years ago, the Iraq wars. Uh, it could be, right? I don't, maybe the nuclear war between us and China and Russia, right? Wipes out the United States, wipes out parts of Russia. And the only safe place is to do it is not in Europe. It's in the Middle East. I don't know. Uh, it absolutely could be. But basically Babylon, and also in another sense, is this global system, this global economy, this global governance, this global uh, influence and power over the whole world. You know, the EU, NATO, UN, whatever label of the global consortium uh, of the West that the Antichrist takes over uh, is going to be this system of Babylon, Babylon the Great. Excuse me. But this system is not just a system of government. It's also a pulpit of immorality. That out of the system, out of the city, out of the society flows a false gospel of immorality. Uh, if you think about New York, right? New York's the Big Apple. Philadelphia is the bro- city of brotherly love. California, you know, L.A. is Hollywood and movies come out of it. You know, D.C. is government. 9-11 was no accident. They attacked our financial heart and our government head. They attacked New York and D.C. That there was uh, a spiritual side to it in the sense they're attacking these centers of our society. And you've probably heard the saying, as California goes, so goes the rest of our nation. Things that begin to crop up in California, well, the westerly winds blow the stench of their immorality across the country usually out of Hollywood, out of television, and it comes into all of our homes. And what 20 years ago would have been insane, crazy, is now being touted and signed into law. And you're a bigot if you oppose it, right? And that's the same thing, that there's this wine of the wrath of the sexual immorality, that this whole world goes along with this sexual liberation uh, being espoused by this global kingdom that comes out of this wicked city, this wicked system, Babylon, which Satan is ruling over and on his throne. And I won't read it for time, but in Matthew, I think we've read it before, what do you, Bethsaida and Chorazin, you know, if the things done in you were done in Sodom and Gomorrah, the wicked city of the past, 
Sodom and Gomorrah would have repented long ago. And the world, this final system that comes out, they've had hundreds of years of the gospel coming out of America. They've had the Reformation in Europe, right? They've had thousands of years of Christianity. And the system and the city still sprout up and still spouts evil. And they are unrepentant. And so God says, woe to you. Woe to you, Babylon. You're going to fall. But think about this sexual immorality that's taking over the world today that people believe in. That people put on their job profile, their pronouns, so to speak. Um, and all sort of twisted things that are being espoused and even being forced on children in schools, indoctrinated uh, by their teachers in preschool, being robbing them of their childhood, being shoved down their throats by every media outlet, by Disney's just the tip of the iceberg, Netflix, cuties. What is this stuff that they're making and producing that is absolute filth, that is about children, corrupting children, aimed at children, separating from their parents the government knows better i know better don't listen to your parents do this and it really it's really destroying a generation these kids when they grow up they're going to be so messed up it's going to wonder they're they're going to go along with all this stuff because they've had their hearts and their spirits corrupted from being a child not even they can barely spell and they're being asked to understand perversion that is not understandable right things that God says are an abomination. That's a strong word. And it's being put on children. Being taught to children. Don't learn math. Learn this perversion. Don't worry about growing up and just learning to tie your shoes. Question your entire being. It's satanic to the very core of it. No, There's no joke about it. But this is the consequence. This is the wine of the wrath. That there's an end to it. There's a fruit to this. And we're experiencing it, right? In Romans 1, I won't read it again, but you're probably familiar with it. Read it later for time if you want. Uh, 18 through 32. It says, Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness. God gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. All this stuff is to dishonor to your body. Right? God talks about sexual morality being something that's against the sin against your own body. That they're dishonoring their bodies and they're worse than that. They're uh, disfiguring their bodies permanently even, damaging them even, giving them chemicals before they're teenagers to prevent their body from going through certain changes. That's irreversible. That's unfixable. 27. Receiving in themselves the penalty of the error which is due. That this is a severe error. And as you carry it out, there's only penalty. You can't cut yourself and not bleed, so to speak, Right? You know, I, I joke around with my kids sometimes. I say, play stupid games, win stupid prizes, right? When we begin to do stupid and foolish things in our life, there's only one thing we can expect to win out of it, a stupid or a foolish prize. And it's sad because the world is going after Satan, is going after children. Children. He's destroying them. And parents are leading them down that path. There's even worse because they're deceived. And we're going to close out here in a minute. I know we're at 42 minutes, but God's wrath plays out on them directly and really indirectly. Again, remember, we know the wages of sin is death. You begin to believe these things. Well, there's only one end to that path of belief, right? There's only one result for doing that equation. And what's worse is that those who have gone through that and have gone back and have exposed it or even adhere to it and say that we're going too far are being censored left and right. And believe me, wrath is coming 
for these things. And the wrath, I believe, is already upon us for these things. But the third angel says, more wrath is announced. We're not done with wrath, guys. We're only in chapter 14 of Revelation. That those who take the mark and worship the beast, while well, it's all, all, <laughs> all stops are out, all bets are off, God's full wrath and his full cup are poured out on them for taking the mark and worshiping the beast, right? That today everyone in life has a chance, I believe, up until their last thought, right? I, um, you know, we used to go visit Nanny, right? Like we used to pray with her and read the Bible to her because we know that even though the hospital might say one thing about her state, we know that her spirit was in that body and we know that God was ministering to her there. And I don't know how it works, but I, but I believe that until that last minute, everyone has every chance to turn to God. And not that she didn't before in life, but my point is that we have a, a chance and God gives everyone a chance until the last minute that you could be in a coma, right? But you're still alive. I guarantee God is showing up and ministering to you in your dreams or in some sort of dream state. I, or even if, even I, I don't know how all that stuff works, but I know how God works and he works wonders and he works miracles and he loves everyone. He's going to give everyone a chance. Now, whether they turn to it or not, right? They've hardened their hearts so hard. That's, that's a different story. I don't know how that works, but God's able and God's fair, and God's just, and he's going to give everyone a chance, as many chance, a million billion chances up until their last second, last nanosecond, to avoid hell and spend eternity with him. But these people who take the mark and worship the beast, well, they've cut that off. They've chosen that death. They've chosen spiritual death way before the end of their physical life. They said, nope, I don't need any more chances, God. I believe Satan is God. I'm worshiping him. I've heard the gospel. I've heard the angels. We've seen the martyrs. We've killed all Christians. We knew the rapture happened, and we chose not to believe it. And I want the mark. And so what happens? The full strength of God's anger is poured out on them. Because rejecting Jesus is one thing. Even though, in effect, it's choosing Satan, right? There's only one choice. It's God or not. It's the same choice. But outright rejecting him, outright choosing Satan, outright worshiping the creature rather than the creator in the place of God, well, what more wrath could there be from a holy God? That is like the utmost affront to the holy God. That's the utmost act of spiritual war against the spiritual king is to accept his usurper. And James says in James 4, 4, adulterers and adulteresses. Remember Babylon, the woman of Babylon, we'll read more about it later in future chapters. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself the enemy of God. These people purposely choose being an enemy with God. And we look at people now, they hate God. They want nothing to do with God. These people that espouse these things, talk about parents, they, these Christians need to be killed because we're getting in the way of them doing what they want to do, which is ultimately worship Satan. And they, maybe they just don't realize it yet, but they will in this time. And this is heavy here as we close in verse 10 and 11. It says that they are tormented with fire and brimstone. This is hell. They're tormented with hell. But it says it's in the presence of God and his angels. Right? Hell is the complete absence of God. You've died. You've gone to hell. You realize I am totally disconnected from God. I had every chance in my life. All these memories are replaying. It's hot. You're gnashed of teeth. The worm is eating. All these awful things. You never die. You never get your thirst quenched. And you realize you had all the opportunity to choose God and you didn't. That God loved you and you rejected him 
and you chose sin, and now you're punished in it forever. In some sense, I believe that's totally distant, totally cut off. You know, maybe my theology's off here, but I think in some sense, this is almost like a special compartment of hell if there were such a thing. That these people who take the mark and worship the beast and reject God with full knowledge of him, full knowledge of God in his presence in these last days, it's undeniable. They're seeing angels fly around. There's no question. That's an angel. He's telling me about Jesus. Even if I thought he was an alien, he's telling me about Jesus. There's this guy. The Bible is here. My, my crazy co-worker who disappeared a couple years ago he used to tell me about it all the time. And then he disappeared just like he said he would. And this guy came on the world scene just like he said he would. And they made me take a mark just like they said he would. And I still chose it? Well, I think there's a certain special place in hell for that type of immorality. And they burn before in the presence of God. They know. They know full well. And they get no rest. That those who have taken the mark of the beast get no rest. And what does God want to give for us? Rest. All throughout the Bible it says, I give, like we read in church today, I give my children rest. I want to give you rest. Come to me, you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Enter into your father's rest. Well done. Your work is done. And Satan wants to take all that rest away from us. But God, that's the only thing he really wants to offer us, the spiritual rest. And it says, here's the patience of the saints, right? The patience of the saints is enduring through this time until death. That these people who keep the commandments of God have to be patient. It's going to take some special type of patience to make it in this day. But he says, a voice says, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. That's kind of morbid. When you go to church, when you come to a Bible study, when you listen to heaven, I don't think any of us expect to hear the voice say, blessed are those who die from now on in Jesus. How would you like that if the pastor of the end of church said, go forth and die and be blessed? I don't know that that's the commandment we want to hear. That dying for God is a blessing. And do we look at our deaths that way? I'm not saying we should look forward to death or be suicidal or not enjoy this life or not live to be an example in this life and fulfill this life. But when death comes to us, even if we just consider it, we're not sick, we're not unhealthy, we're living a fine life, do we look forward to it? Do you and I think, man, it's going to be a blessed day when I die. When I die, it's going to be the best day of my life because I'm going to heaven. I'm going to worship God. I'm going to see all those who have gone before me. I'm going to dance with David. I'm going to hug my grandfathers. I'm going to, I'm going to hug and kiss Jesus. I'm going to feast forever and ever. This world is over and I died. Why do we not look at it that way? Why are we so deceived to think that death is not a blessing? Yeah, it's hard. Yeah, I grieve for those who I've lost. I grieve for the pain that family and friends go through at it. I don't look forward. I want to live as long as possible to care for my family. But at the same time, I look forward to death and I want to look forward to it more. And I think that's what the Spirit would say to us because what does the Spirit say in response to that? The Holy Spirit hasn't said one thing directly yet recently. He says, yes, yes, yes. This is it, guys. That blessed is death. That when this life is over and we go to the next one, yes, it's here. When we get there, we're going to say, yes, yes, yes. Like you went, if you said that, if you won the lottery, right? You say that if your boss says, I'm going to give you off for the rest of your life and I'm going to pay your wages. You know, you say that when you get out of a ticket. <laughs> yes, yes, 
yes, he let me go. I wouldn't know anything about that. But are we sealed for that day? And my point is, and again, like I think the Holy Spirit's point is, are we ready? Are we marked by God to where when death comes, we say yes. We don't say no and clamor for a way out of it. Because 2 Corinthians 1 says, He who establishes us with you in Christ has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. That just like the 144,000 have, have the Father's name written on us, the Holy Spirit is our seal, has sealed us, is our guarantee that we're going to heaven. And are we sealed for that day? Are we living for that day? Because when we die, we jump to His day. It's His day. God has His full work done in us when we die. We're complete in Him. We go home. The struggle is over. The tribulation of our life is over. And we're in the presence of God. We're exactly where He wants us to be. And with that, are we distracted? Are we deceived by goals in this life? Not that the things and accomplishments in this life are bad, but are we distracted by them? What is truly important to us? Whose recognition? Is it stepping in and hearing Jesus say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter your Father's rest. Or are we just looking forward to another game of golf? Are we just looking forward to another round of whatever it is that we enjoy? That, may, that isn't bad, that God might even provide for us to do those things, right? But is it the main thing that we're living for? Does our fellowship evidence this longing, this desire? Or really, are we content with less? Are you and I content in our lives today? Or do we want more? Do we not realize that there is more to this life, whether we have a one day or a hundred days or a hundred years left? Are we content with that? Do we not want more? Are we not, why are we not fighting for more? And why are we not running after more? We should be running the marathon, that race, towards that day when we die and enter in His rest. And it doesn't mean you can't take a vacation, but what I mean, man, is with the bubble burst of Western life, the American dream, just like those 144,000 who are totally aware that the world is burst. There's nothing else to live for but Jesus. Shouldn't we want to live more for the eternal kingdom? Because it's painfully obvious that living for this earthly kingdom is not worth it anymore. It's not going to be worth it anymore. And it's falling apart. Is it not? So if the spirits say yes, then we should say Maranatha. So God, would you bless us? Would you help us follow you and serve you? And God, be ready for that day. Whatever you have for us, God, let us live full on. If we haven't lived full on and we're longing for more, you've been laying it on our hearts to do more, God, help us just step out and do it and just follow it and run after it until the day we die and cast aside every burden and every sin and snare that easily ensnares us and be ready for your return. God, because I know that when you come back, I know that all of us want to be ready and say, God, we, we've done as much as we can for you. So God, would you do that? Would you let us live the last of our days, however many they are, let us number them, but let us live them for you and be willing each day to put off more and more and be willing to say yes when you say yes and, and go when you tell us to go. We love you, God. We ask in Jesus' name. Come soon. Amen. So may God bless you and keep you as, and His face shine upon you. And may blessed be the death of the saints from this day forward. Thanks for listening today. If you've never come face to face with God, if you're starting to see that your life is not all that it's supposed to be, if it's weighed down with sin and burden, or perhaps it's just empty, you have everything you want in life, but you know there's more. 
Know that Jesus loves you. Know that He cares for you. And that the reason why He came and died on the cross is that all the things you've done wrong, the things that are called sin, keep you from going to heaven. Keep you from being close to Him, close to the one who truly loves you. And if that's you, all you have to do, like the Bible says, is believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that He's Lord and you will be saved. You don't have to do anything else. So won't you pray with me? You can pray this. It's easy. Talk to Him. He's listening. Lord Jesus, God, I see that I'm a sinner, that I can't live without you. I can try, but and I have tried, but it's empty. It's worthless. It's painful, and, and it's killing me. And I'm sorry. Please forgive me of hurting you and hurting other people and myself. Please make me clean. Help me, God, to know you and to trust you and to follow you all my days. Be my Lord. And come soon, I pray, Jesus. Amen. And if you've prayed that or something similar in your own words, please let us know. Visit our website and get in touch. Or talk to someone in your life who's a Christian. Find a good church that believes the Bible, that teaches the Bible, that lives it. And get involved. Christians aren't perfect, but God is. And He wants you to be around others who love Him. So may God bless you and keep you and His face shine upon you.